guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 187. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, we do have another question and answer episode for you today, thanks to all the great questions that came over in on Instagram land. And there was a bit of a theme with these questions, Jack. A lot of people are curious about, you know, the ins and outs of bulking. <laughs> Not a dirty word, definitely a very common word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> bulking, great terminology. But we did get a lot of questions related to bulking, or I guess we could say putting on weight in a controlled manner, and you would hope the large majority of it is muscle mass. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So Jack, I would love to hear your answer to this first question. It says, when you're in a bulking phase, how do you ensure your weight gain is muscle and not fat? Well, there is inevitably going to be some fat gain. I think there are rare circumstances when someone might exclusively gain muscle, but unfortunately, or depends how you look at it, there will be some fat gain Mm -hmm. along the way. So I think that's... First of all, one thing to accept right from the get-go is that in order to have a successful and productive bulking phase, it's not necessarily exclusively determined by how much fat you gain. It's determined by how much muscle you gain. So remember also that it's, at least for the majority of people, by far, it's much easier for them to lose fat than it is to gain muscle. Mm. So for example, if you lost half a kilo per week and you did that for 10 weeks, I'll be five kilos lost and that's yeah under one fifth of the year whereas you gaining five kilos in a year I would be incredibly impressed if you could do that so to put it into perspective like that the amount of fat that you gain should be a factor in your bulking phase because you don't want to gain excessive amounts of fat but I think worrying too much about how much fat you gain is going to limit your ability to have a productive bulking phase. Mm, Absolutely. It can't actually cloud your vision of what you're trying to achieve in that phase. If you're trying to commit to, let's say, a long-term building phase and your primary goal is to minimize fat gain the whole way, yeah, yeah, you might actually cut yourself short in terms of how much muscle you can actually build. Mm, Yeah. I think where people often go wrong as well in bulking phases is they... They have too much of a short-term vision. So, okay, I'll do a six-week bulk and then maybe a six-week cut and check out all this progress I'll make, Mm. which won't be visible, unfortunately. You're not going to gain a meaningful amount of muscle in six weeks. So I think often I recommend at least a six-month period of gaining, ideally. And I think that's enough. Like, sure, you can probably build maybe a meaningful amount of muscle in, in less than that, depending on who you are. But unless you're genetically blessed or unless maybe you are in the earlier stages of your training career then six months I think is uh, where it probably needs to be at a minimum and then maybe mini cut after that and then repeat so in order to actually minimize fat gain though because sure even right now like my goal is still to minimize fat gain while gaining muscle like Mm -hmm. that should be the ultimate goal but of course within reason and I know that I am going to gain body fat along the way. And I think holding yourself to a particular rate of gain is important. And as we often say, I feel like we've said this a thousand times, but... You never know who's (laughs) tuning in though. Yeah, I know. I know. Roughly like 1% of your body weight per month. So Mm -hmm. if you're gaining drastically under that, 
then you probably are you you are going to reduce the amount of fat gain but you're also going to reduce the amount of muscle that you potentially gain and vice versa like gaining three percent of your body weight per month which is also incredibly common like i see people gaining like a kilo every week and they might weigh 80 kilos but that's well and truly well above one percent of your body weight Mm -hmm. so you're going to gain a fair amount of excess body fat while Mm -hmm. doing that yeah and there there was actually a uh, eric helms recently did a uh, a summary on one of his research papers uh, which was i think partially sponsored by renaissance periodization and they basically compared like a i think it was a 10 percent surplus with a 15 percent energy surplus and I think it was own. It was mainly looked at the biceps brachii, though, so it's not maybe not the best area to assess. Hey, everyone wants big arms, you yeah. know. Welcome to the gun show. But essentially, just the larger surplus resulted in more fat gain, mm. and and incomparable amounts of difference in muscle mass. So the same amount of muscle gain, but more fat gain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely dependent on how much you actually weigh as well. But I think that, yeah, most people do kind of land in that ballpark range of when they're in a building phase or a bulking phase, you know, I think the two can be used pretty synonymously. I think that most people do land in that range of gaining around 1% of their body weight per month. I think if you wanted to take a slightly more conservative approach, you could gain close to like 0.5% to 1% or in some cases, some people, especially if they're like brand new to the gym or maybe they're coming back from an injury or they're, you know, post comp, like they're wanting to be a little bit more assertive with their rate of gain, maybe going close up to 1.5% of their body weight per month. But even if you go toward the very bottom end, like let's say that you had a 60 kilo female and she was gaining 0.5% of her body weight per month, that's 300 grams on average across an entire month time frame. Like one, you're either like crazy meticulous with how you are managing every single variable in your life to actually determine that, hey, this is actually 300 grams worth of tissue weight, not just 300 grams worth of weight fluctuations. Because it's normal for most people's body weights to fluctuate by more than 300 grams on a daily basis anyway. So I think Mm. close to 1% on average per month I think that's probably a bit more solid to say that, yeah, you've probably actually gained tissue weight in this time. It's not just food bulk, hydration status, you know, changing a few variables here and there. You woke up at 4 a.m. instead of 8 a.m., you know. Yeah. And of course, the rate of gain is only one piece of the puzzle. Like we also have to, like, what are the other factors which are going to influence your muscle mass Mm -hmm. and of course that is training and then we can sub like break down training into multiple different components and then we can also your lifestyle components so stress and sleep we can also break your lifestyle down into multiple components and then nutrition we can also break that down into multiple Mm -hmm. components like your protein intake protein distribution having decent meal timing those are all sort of more minutia but if you really want to maximize muscle gain and minimize fat gain then you, you do kind of need all those variables optimized mm-hmm. if you truly want to do that. Yeah, but I'd say, let's say that everyone had their, you know, basic ducks in a row in terms of their diet is nutritionally sound, they're eating sufficient protein, and they're also in a slight energy surplus. I think the big ticket item is training performance. People need to be capitalizing on their training and making sure that they are getting stronger over time and that numbers in their logbook are going up. And it's not just the case of like, 
woohoo, I was able to do an extra rep on my tricep overhead extensions. But I think like picking a few big key compound movements that you know that you are well accustomed to in terms of like being able to confidently perform the movement pattern and you're over that hump, you've been programming them for a long length of time. I think actually starting to see progressions there in terms of load progressions and then also getting stronger for reps too. I think that is a huge thing. Yeah, for sure. I think training is most important variable, like maybe even more so important than like how much of a surplus Mm -hmm. you're in. Maybe not actually when it comes to the degree of fat you gain, but I think both are very important. And also something that is heavily underrated still is is getting a coach. Like I recently made a reel and, and did a bit of a caption on like filming your sets in the gym. And I think one of the key points of that caption was you can't fix what's wrong if you don't know what's wrong to begin with. And mm-hmm. I think often people do feel like they're training hard and they're being consistent and the only people they have to compare to is themselves because they don't know maybe what it feels like for other people to train hard or they don't necessarily know like, okay, is there a better way to perform this exercise or is there a better way to construct my split? Um, and they may have just, I find that a lot of people go and particularly some of the guys that I've coached previously, they come to me and they've been following like Jeff Nippard's templates because they're like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to get a coach, but hey, Jeff Nippard's this evidence-based guy let's go grab his templates because you can't go wrong with Jeff Nippard, mm. right? And like for the most part, that's right. Like he, his templates are great. They're very in-depth. It'd be a really good starting point. For definitely sure. Much better than, you know, the average, mm. you know. Bodybuilding.com, yeah. Yeah, or like bikini booty builder sort of program mm. out floating around the web. Yeah. And then I think usually it's, it's then my job to kind of assess what they are doing and then to make it better. Because like there's always ways that... Jeff Nippard's programs can be tailored even better towards the, the individual. Mm. And that's where a coach is, is necessary is that they, a good coach should look at how you are training. So like if your coach isn't, if your goal is to gain muscle and your current coach isn't at least asking to assess training, whether it be video format, I mean, that's the most obvious way of doing it because not every coach can be with you in the gym, but they're not at least offering to do that. Then maybe you should ask them to because mm. yeah, there's... There's a lot of wrong ways. There's a lot of right ways to perform movements and they need to actually look how you're training. Yeah. I know that I tell all of my clients to take full advantage of me on that front. I'm like, Hey, I'm over here. Give me a job to do. Like Mm. my chat is fully open for WhatsApp, iMessage, whatever, but like send me some training footage throughout the week so I can really see how you're performing these movements. And I'd say more often than not, particularly for females, usually the movement looks pretty good. You know, like girls, they're hinging just fine on an RDL, (laughs) but it's the case of it's just lacking that intensity. And that's one of the most common pieces of feedback that I give to girls is the case of like, I'm not gonna lie, I would actually more so be impressed if I ever so slightly saw a slight form breakdown on your eighth or your 10th rep, rather than you just ending the set, just like looking like it's absolute textbook standard, super duper perfect. And then you just lightly place the dumbbells back on the bench. Like Mm. I want to see some grimace on your face. I want to see you fight for it. I'm definitely not going to be like cranky or reprimand you if your back ever so slightly rounds on the final rep of an RDL. I'd be like, 
this is awesome. You're pushing yourself really, really hard. So at least that's like, of course, there's definitely form critiques here and there. Don't get me wrong. We can all improve on every front. But I'd say more so in the beginning stages for females, especially, it's just like learning to train hard and just fully embracing that. You know, like I I know personally, I would actually be a little bit more insecure to be seen in the gym not pushing myself compared to just training really sub-maximally. I think that's far more impressive when you see people getting after it. Yeah, to what? Not getting after it? Oh, you know, just, I'm like, come on, you could RDO triple that weight. <laughs> you know, like, give me some oomph. And you and I recently actually made a reel on Instagram talking about this and how to accurately assess, okay, what is my true proximity to failure? Because a lot of people just end sets when they feel like, ooh, this is getting a little bit tough and they'll just call it quits. But there's actually a more objective way to determine were you truly approaching or were you truly at muscular failure rather than, oh, the set just got tough. So, you know, I just called it ends there. Mm. Yeah, and I'd encourage checking that out because we break it down because I feel like maybe in the past when we've talked about proximity to failure or training intensely, it might sometimes even come across too subjective in the sense that we're just broadly saying that, oh, you're not training hard enough. Maybe because mm. your eyes aren't bulging or you don't have bloodshot vision after your set. <laughs> but whenever we say that, we more so reference their concentric rep speed towards the end of the set. And this will differ significantly depending on the movement. Like in an RDL, for example, even the final rep is probably going to be relatively quick mm. compared to something like a bench press or a bicep curl, etc. So essentially like, and this is where again, filming your sets is critical because you can't count this in the, in the moment. Like, Oh, I don't know about you. Uh, I actually do count now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I personally can't count and I'm not, I'm not really going to try and count because <laughs> I think there's something to be said about staying within the set. And I think if you externally try and count, then, mm you might take yourself out out of the set. And yeah, it's roughly like three to five seconds, mm. probably more so closer to three to four seconds for lower body movements. And then closer to four to six seconds even for upper body movements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we know that when a muscle is lengthening and shortening, there are two phases to it. There's the eccentric phase, which is the lengthening phase. I almost try to remember eccentric as like extending. So for example, imagine that you're doing an RDL, you're lengthening and you're extending and you're going down toward the ground. When you're hinging back, that would be the eccentric phase. The concentric phase is the shortening phase of a muscle. And I almost think of like contracting, like mm. shortening. Uh, Except in the RDL on the way up, that, that's extension of the back. Yeah, so. well, it's extension of the back, but then we're talking about the hamstrings and glutes, you mm. know. <laughs> it's a flipping multi-joint exercise, ain't it? But the eccentric and concentric phase, so the concentric phase, that's the one that we're talking about here. So, for example, let's say that you are doing a dumbbell shoulder press. That's when you're trying to push the dumbbells up. Let's say that you were doing a leg press. That's when you're trying to push the sled away from you. That is the concentric phase. Now, in order to actually be close or actually hitting true failure, you want that concentric phase to be three seconds or more. So when you see someone do a dumbbell shoulder press, and yeah, maybe it looks a little bit shaky, but the dumbbells go from their shoulders right up to the top of their head within one and a half to two seconds, you could argue, hmm, probably should have tried to fight for one or two more reps. So yeah, 
just film your sets and actually look at how long are these reps actually taking me because leg press I think is a phenomenal example where things feel really really tough but then you look back on footage and you're like "Mm, it doesn't look that hard (laughs) so uh, I think that's always good to get a second pair of eyes from a coach or just kind of look over your own training footage too and be like oh is it all in my head or like oh man no that was definitely a six second concentric on that bench Mm. yeah another point I made in my caption as well was like And this is what I say to clients who don't feel comfortable filming themselves in the gym is name me one sport or like physical pursuit in which you don't video, they don't use video analytics. Mm -hmm. Like they, they use it for every sport Mm -hmm. and ultimately like weightlifting, whether that be Olympic weightlifting or powerlifting or strongman or bodybuilding training, like it's all a form of sporting endeavor or physical pursuit. So like, why shouldn't you film yourself? Like it's, it only makes sense to assess your execution and your intensity otherwise there's no other way to do it other than having a personal trainer there with you which the majority of people don't and it's not cost effective for that to happen long term (laughs) i even remember back when i was swimming and this was like back in like 2007 and they'd get out those like really old school cameras on the tripods like yeah obviously like video footage used to look very different then but like my swimming coach would be on the side of the pool deck and he'd be filming me like during a kicking set and then we'd go back and watch it looking back now i don't even know how the heck he knew what he was analyzing because the quality was just so Mm. flipped on the back of this camera but he's like look you know like your feet aren't straighter you're doing this with your ankles and i'm like ah okay and then you'd go back and analyze it or you'd go to like a really fancy pool and they would actually have a, a level below the pool and there would be windows on the side of the pool wall where coaches could actually go down there and watch you swimming from underneath so they could actually assess like, okay, what is your hand position when you're actually pulling through the water, etc. Mm. Very interesting. <laughs> So there you go, guys. Uh, Like everyone's filming in the gym these days and it's actually only going to work to your benefit. Yeah. Yeah. But bottom line, how do you ensure your weight gain is muscle and not fat? Gain in at an appropriate rate. So 0.5 to maximally 1.5% of your body weight per month. Make sure you're getting stronger for reps in the gym, particularly on your big compounds. And just make sure that all of your ducks are in a row in terms of nutrition, right? And uh, good quality sleep at night. If you would like to ask us a podcast question, make sure to be following our Instagram at The Bodybuilding Dietitians, where we release regular informative content on nutrition, training, and bodybuilding topics. We also ask for podcast questions on a regular basis. We'll see you there. So moving on to this next question, it's kind of along the lines of what you were talking about on how you want to be committing to a building phase for at least six months. But this person says that They've previously wrapped up a dieting phase. Then they went into a six month building phase. Now they're curious, okay, it's been six months of gaining weight. Should I go into a maintenance phase or should I go into another dieting phase? Mm. Yeah, so I guess this is basically breaking down the gaining and cutting cycles of bodybuilding or if anyone wants to put on muscle over time in a productive fashion, this is essentially what I'd recommend. And six months is just an arbitrary number. So I've gained for much longer than six months. I've gained for up to like a year straight at a time. And 
other people, yeah, six months is towards like the minimum that I'd like between gaining phases. So I'd really only cut after six months if your body composition or external factors are pointing towards needing a dieting phase. So for like, I don't really like to reference body fat, but if someone does have a goal of competing, then I wouldn't want them to basically get to a position where they're too far away from their stage weight mm. in their gaining phase even if they feel like relatively good in the gym like there ultimately is a point where they will need to come back down again and the majority of people will be like that i would say the mi minority of people either maybe have a restriction to appetite or they have a restriction to just feeling like crap when they mm. get to a higher body weight i would say the majority of people need to be more cognizant of body comp I would say ultimately, the, probably the more advanced you get in bodybuilding and the more muscle you have, you probably will start to feel those more external factors like restriction to appetite, maybe poorer sleep. Mm. I think least. there's certainly a point of diminishing returns where you mm. can't just keep gaining and gaining and gaining weight <laughs> because absolutely you are going to realize that like, hey, this isn't really benefiting my training performance, even though I have ample amounts of energy technically because I'm eating so many calories every day. I don't feel like it. I feel super lethargic. I want to take mm. naps in the afternoon. Yeah. And I think ultimately, maybe we'll start saying this more often because it really is just the truth. But that's again, where a coach comes in handy because if I didn't have AJ in my corner, then I would probably stop bulking at like 92. Like mm. that's just when I stop feeling comfortable. My appetite goes down the drain and yeah, I don't feel amazing between 92 and 95, but I know that I'm going to be getting to 95 again. I'm going to have to push through about three-ish months of feeling mm. fairly uncomfortable. I have a question for you on that though, because obviously you certainly went through that phase of feeling like that, but when it was at like the end of a very extended building phase, mm. because someone like you who had, like you mentioned, you built for over 12 months. That's because obviously you were coming out of a competition prep and you had so much runway ahead mm. of you in terms of like close, well over 15 kilos, right? As a male bodybuilder. So you had a lot of runway there. Do you feel like that was just so uncomfortable for you because you had been in a surplus for so long doing the thing? Or do you truly think that it's always going to be related to just that territory of body weight or over time you getting back into the 92s 93s 94s 95s over time it's gonna be like yeah okay it's not you know my most ideal body composition or i'm not super duper comfortable but it's not nearly as uncomfortable as it was last time yeah i think that the first time i came up after competing though i got up to 92 and then mm. we mini cut there and then the second then the second time i went from like 86 to 95 mm. And then this time I, we stopped at like 87 and I'll be getting up to 95 again. So I'm hoping that each time it does get a little bit easier, but there's only one way to find out, which mm -hmm. is to, to do it. And I think, yeah, over time as my body fat comes down, as I get heavier over years and years, then yes, it probably will get easier. Mm. And I'm sure depends on my external stresses as well. Like if I'm quite stressed, I know that inhibits my appetite. Like if I have an injury at the same time, then that also makes me quite stressed and not quite as positive and that will restrict my appetite too. Mm. So uh, yeah, the short answer is I think it will fluctuate over time. Mm. Yeah. But doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really change what I was saying because I think a lot of people are fairly poor at assessing 
when they need to stop a gaining phase or when mm. they should stop a gaining phase. Yeah. Either they stop it way too early or they or they just go on for too long and then it takes months and months and months to bring them back down mm -hmm. to where they should be. Yeah, get a bit complacent with it and it's all about, you know, mm. <laughs> just building shapes. And I'm like, yeah. uh, you have shapes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, but let's just answer this question. One, if someone's been building for six months, should they then go into a maintenance or go into a dieting phase? I think, of course, it really determines on what does their physique actually look like and you'd need to do an assessment there. But I think it's important to remember too is that like you need to dedicate an ample amount of time to a building phase before you really warrant or also even, I don't want to use the word deserve, but you've almost earned that right to then go back into a dieting phase. I think that's responsible. <laughs> and what I'd say is that for every month of building kind of warrants you then one week of dieting. So let's say that this person had been building for six months, then I would allow them probably about six weeks worth of a dieting phase if they wanted to do a six month build and then like a six week mini cut, that mm -hmm. sort of ratio. And I think having those sort of set guidelines is important because it doesn't allow people to just, you know, be like, okay, cool. I've been building for two months now. Now I'm going to chuck myself into a two month long diet. One, that's overkill. That's unnecessary. Something's going wrong with either, either of those in terms of your rate of gain was just way too excessive. And, um, you're also not losing at nearly an appropriate fast enough rate of loss either. But I think holding yourself to that, uh, should allow you to spend the large majority of your time in a calorie mm. surplus if you are obviously in the pursuit of changing your body comp long term and you actually want to build more muscle mass. Yeah, because even if you look at it from a numerical standpoint, like if someone does gain 1% every month for six months, that's 6% gained. You can lose like 1% each week. Mm. Over the course of one month of dieting, that's 4% of your body weight lost. So over eight weeks of dieting, that's 8% loss. So you've, in eight weeks, you've already more than lost what you started off at. And I think, again, people get into more trouble when they might gain like 20% of their body weight in, in, in six months because then it's going to take a long time to, to come back down. And the, to answer the question, question about maintenance, like, no, you don't really need to have a period of maintenance before you diet or cut like i don't know who popularized that but <laughs> well this is kind of what we endorse with a pre-prep phase it is yeah but it's that's very different mm. so i think a maintenance phase is really only useful when oh there's there's a few different scenarios when it's useful but i would say number one is when maybe someone just mentally needs that maintenance transition between bulk and cut or cut and bulk but like physiologically like there's no problem with going from one to the other really mm. Uh, aside from certain circumstances like prep, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it would just be the case of if you find yourself in a body composition that you really want to solidify, let's say you, right? You don't, you wouldn't just dip into the 95 kilos for one day. You'd be like, okay, I've been in the 95 kilos consistently for three weeks now. Like that's mm. a true body weight for me. I've solidified it. So that could be argued as a brief maintenance phase or at the very end of a dieting phase. Once again, you might hit a new low. You don't just want to bounce in there and then just revert straight away. You might want to actually solidify that body weight and be like, okay, mm. cool. I'm consistently 65 kilos and I've been maintaining that for the past number of weeks. 
I've found myself some new data points in terms of I know what my, what my maintenance calories are now at this body weight too. And now I feel like I'm in a position as well mentally to enter back into a uh, slight surplus into a building phase again. Mm. Yeah, but I don't think it would be necessary to hold out maintenance phases for like months and months at a time. Yeah, unless I would barely you're just call those maintenance phases. I think they're more so. Well, what else are they? It's just you're maintaining who you are. Yeah, but yeah. I sometimes like. What if you accidentally are you you're quite adaptive and you don't gain weight for three weeks? Like, have you been in a maintenance phase then? Mm, <laughs> on paper. <laughs> yeah, on paper you. I guess objectively you have, but like it's unintentional. So, mm. I think often people maybe think maintenance phases are more beneficial <laughs> than they are. Hey, I'll, I'll just answer this very quick. All right, if you've been building for six months and now you're curious, hey, should I go into a maintenance phase or should I go into a dieting phase? Hit us up for a consultation and get our honest opinion. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This last question that's related to bulking, Jack, it says, can supplements help you get faster results when you're bulking? Yes, they can. Mm. But how much faster? That's the question. <laughs> and also, what is results? Like results is so vague. Mm. Like, are they talking about like, could supplements help me gain weight at a faster rate could they help me get stronger at a faster rate could they help me just primarily build muscle mass and minimize fat gain during a bulking phase hmm yeah so the short answer is they can probably help with all of those things but again by not very much assuming you're talking about natural supplements or yeah. <laughs> non-banned ones so yeah, where do we start? Like, I think realistically, you're probably looking at anywhere from like one to three percent benefit from yeah. whatever supplements you might take, and probably people who are going to benefit more, or maybe, for example, certain demographics like vegetarians or vegans who naturally have a lower intake of certain nutrients that would benefit you more in the gym or for muscle gain. So, oh. we know that people who are vegan they don't eat much uh, creatine containing foods like beef. And therefore, by supplementing with creatine, they're going to benefit more from that than someone who is omnivorous. So like for me and Tierra, who eat kangaroo regularly or chicken, like that has creatine in it. So oh. therefore, us supplementing with creatine probably won't have as much benefit compared to a vegan or a vegetarian mm -hmm. having creatine. Yeah, they've and they've definitely shown that in the research as well, in the sense of like, you know, for you and I to fully saturate our creatine phosphate stores, we'd have to eat kilograms of meat every single day, which would just be unnecessary too. Uh, but because we obviously do eat animal products on the daily, our creatine thresholds without supplementing would be slightly higher than a vegan or even a vegetarian in most cases. So they generally notice a more hyper response to that if they start supplementation. But 100%. I think that what you mentioned there about how supplements or ergogenic aids, they're only going to provide a one to 3% performance advantage. So if you don't have the other 97 to 99% of your ducks all in a row in terms of like, you're getting good quality sleep at night, you're trying to follow a micronutrient rich diet, you're eating an appropriate amount of calories for your goals, you're following a structured training program and you are training hard. Like if not all of those other boxes are ticked, I wouldn't just, you know, jump right online and be like, I got to get my supplements. <laughs> so I'd really nail the big rocks. Mm. But I'd say if those things are all in a row, then yeah, supplements could faster results. 
I, th- I think they just like they really are that cherry on top they're well, why don't we stop the people from like stop their mouths watering and just tell them some supplements that... yeah what supplements do we take <laughs> i think that a point quickly as well is like unbanned ergogenicase they don't directly increase your muscle mass like mm. they assist in avenues that might give you more muscle mm-hmm. so for example creatine it doesn't actually actually make you gain muscle faster mm. it increases potentially increases strength or power in the gym which indirectly allows you to grow more muscle mm-hmm. by being stronger mm-hmm. um, it might also create the illusion you got a little bit more muscle mass too because like maybe, yeah. it does help to like hydrate your muscles and it does provide a little bit more muscular fullness too mm. we very rarely give shout outs to other podcasts but i will shout out flex success they did a two-part series on supplements mm. and yeah that was quite uh, quite good i enjoyed it and yeah essentially we'll list very similar ones here mm-hmm. so creatine is probably number one and i don't think we need to go into too much depth well but, pretty it, simple just supplement with five grams every single day and it doesn't really matter what time of the day that you take the supplement just get mm. it in and that's a training day or a non-training day yeah and it basically saturates your creatine phosphate stores which is uh, one of the main energy systems used in anaerobic exercise. Mm-hmm. So. And it does have some cognitive benefits too for things like memory retention. So, mm. yeah, and... Even if you don't, yeah. Even if you're not interested in getting stronger, you should you could benefit from taking creatine. Yeah. And especially if you are involved in a combat sport, like, you know, you're playing rugby or you're doing boxing. Like, they've actually shown that athletes who suffer from TBIs, so traumatic brain injuries, if they've been supplementing with creatine prior, they actually have better recovery outcomes. Mm. So just in case you get in a fist fight, man, get your creatine in. Yeah. Do you have the goal of stepping on stage one day in the best shape of your life? And most importantly, want to enjoy the journey along the way? Or perhaps you're not a physique competitor, but still want to take your health, strength, and body composition to the next level and learn more about training and nutrition? If this sounds like you, then please don't hesitate to read about our coaching services in the links below. We would love to help you achieve your goals. Enjoy the rest of the show. And I also recommend these three or four vitamins and minerals for definitely pretty much every male I work with and some females as well, depending on what their goals are, but zinc, magnesium, vitamin D and fish oils. Mm. Fish oil is not a vitamin or mineral, but it's an essential fatty acid. So though I recommend those ones because particularly like vitamin D and fish oils, people don't get enough sun exposure or they don't eat enough uh, omega-3 containing foods and zinc and magnesium because they're essentially related to a lot of facets of recovery, muscle building, muscle contraction, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, they made a joke on like success about people saying etc. when they don't know what else to say after <laughs> after you list the benefits. Um, makes you seem like you know more. <laughs> or it's like assuming that the listener knows. Like, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Mm. <laughs> you're, you're, you're really intelligent over there on that side of the headphones. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm sure everyone is, yeah. And I guess you could chuck in there too, like a lot of vitamin D supplements are fortified with calcium as mm-hmm. well. And, you know, we'd always encourage people to get adequate calcium into their diets if they're consuming dairy products. But 
a lot of people don't consume, you know, the recommended three sources of dairy each day. And unless you're then replacing that with maybe a calcium fortified product, like some calcium fortified plant milk, or you're eating sardines because they have like the pressurized bones in them or cans of salmon with the little bones in them as well, or things like tofu and tempeh, or you're eating like a buttload of chickpeas or something. People have made arguments that even green beans have calcium in them and oranges. And I'm like, yeah, a little bit, man, but uh, it's not quite going to compare to a, to a, about 200 grams worth of yogurt. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, but the good thing is that like vitamin D and calcium are usually together in a supplement, which is awesome because the vitamin D actually helps with the calcium absorption. Mm. Yeah. I think other ones as well as like uh, any sort of supplement that is a nitric oxide booster or reduces the lactate buildup in the muscle, which... I think those are less relevant for bodybuilders, to be Mm. honest. And that's sort of what they also said on Flex Success too about in bodybuilding when maybe not that we can't utilize those supplements like beta alanine or citrulline malate to the same extent as maybe a CrossFit athlete because we're not doing as much repetitions as them, essentially. We're Mm. not building up as much lactate. Mm -hmm. I anecdotally have noticed a benefit in the past when... VPA Australia, they send us supplements, very generous, but uh, this was a few years ago now. I don't supplement with it anymore, but they sent me this thing called Beet 500. So it was actually beetroot juice powder, and I would supplement with about 20 grams worth of that prior to a resistance training session, and I really did notice a difference in my training performance. One, maybe you could attribute it to the fact that it has carbohydrates in it. So I was taking some like additional pre-workout carbohydrates. But at the same time too, I noticed that I had much better recovering heart rate in the gym. I felt like I could have more rep endurance and pump out more reps as well. And I just got really sickening pumps. And my pee. Why are you not still taking this? <laughs> well, they they didn't keep you're sending it like to me. You're saying it's better than creatine, basically. <laughs> no, but legit beetroot juice powder, man. Like my pee was mm. a little bit red, but uh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, should, I shouldn't have um, lumped in nitric oxide boosters because mm. that's completely different to something like beta alanine. Mm. But it, I think citrulline malate works on a similar fashion mm. through arginine, mm-hmm. and yeah, that again, I don't. It's one of those ones where. It, it's the if it was enough to make a significant difference, then I would probably be mm. taking it. And I think a big one is pre-workout, which mm. you and I basically just take for the caffeine hit. But as long as you're supplementing with around three to six milligrams per kilo of body weight of caffeine prior to exercise, that's generally going to provide like a one to three percent advantage in your performance. So that's always an option too. Uh, a little bit of caffeine, but. I remember you having actually this discussion with Brandon Kempter once about caffeine intake. And it did get me thinking too, because always talking about caffeine intake, like in relation to body weight, but man, someone like you, let's say 90 kilos, who's taking six milligrams of caffeine, that would be- Or should be, I'm not actually. Yeah, 450 milligrams worth, but even half that amount, like you even taking, let's say, 270 milligrams of caffeine prior to a training session that would just have you absolutely buzzing like you still take less than that what's what's your kind of sweet spot i think probably about 200 Mm. yeah 
Yeah. And that's not even all together. I have a probably about a, or maybe even less than a hundred milligrams in the morning through a coffee. And then about two hours later, I'll have probably another hundred to 150. Mm. Yeah. And obviously you find that that really helps with your training performance. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if it might even be related to like the actual amount of skeletal muscle mass you have, or like just your body composition in relation to caffeine too. I don't know. I have certainly noticed that, especially when I'm lean as well, even though let's say start to end of a comp prep, you lose about 10 kilos or so, but like, I am so much more sensitive to caffeine when I'm lean. Like I have to really, lower the opposite. Oh, I can have more. No, I get really anxious if I have the same dose of pre-workout. Like I definitely have to cut it That's down. A, well, obviously it's very individual and in, in how you metabolize it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it can't, it's difficult to hypothesize because mm. even then like it, we're literally inverse you can have more when you're heavier i can have more when i'm lighter yeah <laughs> but anyway caffeine good supplement there that can uh, help you with your results <laughs> but last one that i just just comes to mind jack is protein powder would you consider protein powder a supplement no yeah. no it's more of a food yeah but a, a lot of people do supplement normal protein sources like let's say that instead of having some yogurt with a meal or instead of having some chicken or beef with a meal, they'd usually supplement in that meal. They'll be like, oh, I'll just have a protein shake. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there are other ones that we could talk about like ashwagandha as well and Mm -hmm. even melatonin. But yeah, again, not really directly correlated with, with muscle gain per se, but they might, for example, ashwagandha might reduce your stress and allow you to recover slightly better or maybe sleep better and therefore indirectly lead to more muscle gain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think bottom line is nothing's probably going to beat a high-quality diet that satisfies all of your micronutrient requirements and you know your blood work, everything's in a normal physiological range. And then probably top two supplements would just be creatine, five grams per day, caffeine, three to six milligrams per kilo of body weight, about half an hour to 60 minutes before you train. And uh, to make sure you're hitting a total daily protein intake, maybe supplementing with some protein powder here or there. Yeah. And again, not everyone can have a complete diet though, Mm. if they're not omnivorous. Yeah. So then if you're not getting those things through your food, like you mentioned, so if you're not getting adequate sunlight exposure, go maybe supplement with some vitamin D fortified with some calcium. Or if you're a vegan and you're not getting certain nutrients through your food, perhaps you need to supplement things like B12. Omega-3s, I do think, would help a lot of people. Hmm. Mm. Just like you take your calf in for a tune-up, take your body into a um, a dietitian and get a bit of a tune-up, see if... (laughs) See if you're... Is that what we're specialized in? Not a, not a physical tune-up, but more so just a dietary assessment to see if everything's looking good. And it depends who you consult with. If you consult with Jack, you're going to get a tune-up. <laughs> if you consult with Tierra, you're going to get a tune-up. Yep. Australians, man. I will never get that. Pronouncing the T as a ch. <laughs> yeah, tuna. Ch- tuna oh cracking open a can of tuna i'm like no i'm I'm cracking open a can of tuna (laughs) anyway there you go guys i say loony loony tunes loony Loony tunes loony tunes yeah that's what i say tunes not tunes i don't know it depends how quick you're speaking (laughs) but uh yeah i think those are quite a few questions that we've answered today all things bulking but Jack, final thing I'll ask you is uh, one thing that you learned this week. 
Hmm. I learned that I should check the car before I drive away because two days this week I've driven off and my shaker has still been on the top of the car. Oh God. <laughs> we pull out of the driveway and you just hear this like crash on the, <laughs> on the street and Jack's like, no, mm. my pre-workout. Oh man. You, the thing is though, you're in the improvement season right now and even things like, oh no, it was your pre combined with your intra. Yeah. Right? So it was a double, double loss. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> Would have been worse if it was prep. Another supplement we forgot was actually intra. Oh yeah. Yeah. Get some uh yeah, some mm. carbohydrates into your bloodstream. Yeah. What did you <laughs> learn there? Well, yeah, I've learned as well that every time that we get into the car, I always check the roof to make sure that uh there's not a shaker up there that's just going to fall on the street, hopefully not get run over, but also just leave this sticky mess down the side of your car too. Uh, but something else I actually learned this week was just in relation to posing. I just had a bit of a aha moment uh, during a posing lesson that I had with Morgan Eldrin, who's a IFBB bikini pro here. But I've always been trying to get into this IFBB bikini pose that's called a princess pose. I know, very fitting. But essentially it's like a transitional pose where you go from your front pose then into your booty pop mid of that transition, you step into this princess pose. And I was always trying to make it look nice. And I thought that in order to make your front glute look nice, right? It was the case of, okay, one, you need to have glutes in the first place and build your glutes. But also I thought that it was just the case of just going up on my front toe to really shoot up that front hip to show off my glute. But Morgan just helped me have this light bulb moment where it's like, no, you actually need to shift back into your back leg, really push into that back glute and that back hamstring. And then that will actually help to create the shape to then make that front glute pop more. And I was like, aha. So like the tiniest little change like that, right? It's just, again, really beneficial to just have coaches that mm. can just help point out little things that you know, it's, it's not the case of it. Something's like revolutionary. It's just like, think of it like this or just do it in the opposite way. And you're like, Oh my God, I get it now. Yeah. yeah. So, um, really cool. And that pose is looking so much nicer. So mm, thanks Morgan. Thank you, Morgan. And, uh, yeah, princess pose all the way, yeah. <laughs> but that's just what I learned this week. But, uh, yeah, I guess that's the podcast. Cool. Thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, Please, it would mean a lot if you could uh, leave us a rating or a review on Spotify and iTunes and make sure you tag us if you feel generous and want to repost the podcast and we'll catch you guys next week.